Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta Lomo. Today, I'm joined by Ashley Mathias, a doctoral candidate in the Department of Communication at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's here with us today to talk about the QAnon conspiracy and mom influencers. Ashley, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Augusta. I'm really excited to chat about this. It's super interesting. I'm also very excited to have a fellow Tar Heel on the podcast. So that's that's the best part of this for me. Go Heels. So let's start with, let's start first with the QAnon conspiracy. And recently, I've personally gotten a lot of questions about this. And there's starting to be a lot of discussion online um, and in mainstream media outlets about something called the QAnon conspiracy theory. Can you, at the outset, tell us what this is, where it came from, and how it intersects with the far right? Sure. So um, the QAnon conspiracy is essentially um, an online conspiracy theory that is premised on a belief in a global cabal of elites, government officials, and celebrities um, that traffic children for sexual abuse and satanic ritual purposes. Um, The conspiracy theory originally expanded on some earlier online conspiracy theories, notably Pizzagate, um, which posited the, that references to pizza are used by pedophiles and child sexual abusers to discuss their abuse of children. That narrative folded in the Democratic political operatives and the DNC after the DNC hacking of emails, which included a chain about a pizza party at Comet Ping Pong Pizza in Washington, D.C. QAnon theories extended from this to position Donald Trump as a savior who would expose this cabal and bring about a reckoning for those involved. Um, so kind of Q started to rise really in 2017 off of this Pizzagate and some other conspiracy theories floating around on 4chan um, and what would become 8chan. Um, and since then, it's developed into what I would kind of call a meta theory conspiracy um, with highly specific elements. And really interestingly, just in the last week, Gregory Stanton recently outlined a near-exact replication of one of the oldest and most successful Nazi conspiracy meta-narratives, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Um, He called it a Nazi cult, exactly. Um, And so QAnon has adapted the Protocols meta-narrative to the current socio-political situation. And the adaptations are really important because they're highly flexible and allow for really broad participation across a range of concerns and entry points into the Q reality. So many people engaging with the theories may not be aware of the Nazi connections until they're very deeply embedded and engaged with Q itself um, and don't necessarily get introduced through kind of the deep anti-Semitism and other extremist beliefs engaged in the full reality of Q, um, if, if that's one way to describe it. So, for example, one of the big strands of Q that got added recently um, in the last few months was called Wayfair Gate. Um, and this was a theory that posited that children were being trafficked globally by this cabal through really expensive cabinetry sold by Wayfair.com, um, which is not true, absolutely not true. But that kind of led the way to the co-optation of several online hashtags, um, Save Our Children and Save the Children, which is really where this theory started to connect in particular with broad swaths of moms online. Um, So 
the co-optation of the hashtags offers like legitimacy to the conspiracy theory because it connects to legitimate organizations worried about child trafficking. Um, and it provides a purchase point for like women's engagement, right? Taking care of children. So it's really interesting. Um, and a primary vector of the way people are engaged to do this and to get kind of connected to these far right, deeper conspiracies is through the mantra of do your own research. Right, so Q will make drops on a channel, on a platform, uh, really esoteric, like an image or a phrase or a statement that you have to figure out. So as people go in to do their own research and figure out the meaning of these memes and kind of adapt it to the Q reality and, and, and their experience, right, they supply a lot of the, the reason it fits in, right, from their own worldview. And that makes it really hard to disentangle once people have engaged because they've committed so much of their own belief system to it. Um, and it's, it's important also because this model of cue dropping and then figuring out the puzzle sort of works as a form of gamification, making participation really, in many ways, um, problematic uh, because people get a little bit addicted to going back and finding the answer to the puzzle. Um, and it, it's also very problematic because it has really high individual and social effects. Multiple uh, criminal incidents, including murders, abductions, um, attempted terrorist events have occurred from Q adherents. Um, so it's, it's a pretty startling thing that is now spreading from the U.S. and more broadly across particularly the uh, UK and Europe. Thanks for that really great overview, Ashley. It is so hard to condense when, you know, as someone who also works on the far right, when people ask me about Q, it's really hard to even know where to start. And one thing that you mentioned that I really want to, to reiterate is how much some of these, um, I don't want to use the phrase more benign forms of Q because there's really not, but how they've co-opted the phrases like save the children. I, that's what I started seeing on my social media was other friends that I knew that I would not say were members of the QAnon conspiracy posting things about saving their children or save the children that they had picked up from other streams and didn't know where it was coming from. So that was my first inclination that something was going on and Q was starting to to make its way out of what I had thought was a very small marginalized conspiracy theory into, you know, kind of showing up in the mainstream, especially in the middle of the pandemic. Um, so thank you for, for pointing that out and for also mentioning how serious this is. Part of the problem with Q is every, even a lack of evidence is evidence for them. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about, you mentioned the role of, of mom influencers and your research, your, your broader scholarly agenda looks at the role of mom influencers. And you talk a lot about their relationship to extreme sociopolitical movements. How did you specifically become interested in their role in the QAnon conspiracy? And just what can you tell us about mom influencers in general? So um, if you bear with me a minute, I'm going to kind of explain sort of the connections between my general research and my extremism research and how Q um, sort of acts as a nexus point in some ways for that right now. So my broad research focuses on ways kind of gender logics and discourses are used online to reproduce um, dominant 
cultural structures such as race, class, and sexual hierarchies. Um, and in that, my dissertation, which is called Fierce Mamas, New Maternalism, Social Surveillance, and the Politics of Solidarity, um, I focus on normative ways that women use discourses about motherhood to enable their public and political speech online. So think about women who identify as mama grizzlies or security moms, anti-vaxxer moms, eco moms, moms rising. And believe me, there's even more of them. But this kind of move to subjectivity through maternalism online um, is what I study and how that works to reproduce certain kinds of structures. Um, so it's a strategic practice, is what I argue, where women blend maternalism, the specialized role they have as mothers, with this kind of fierce imagery or kind of warriors fighting on behalf of their children. And that is what they use to provide a basis for their authority to speak in public. Now, from that, my extremist research focuses more on how gendered logics radicalize individuals into racial hate and far-right forms of extremism, including the alt-right and male supremacist extremism in the manosphere. Um, kind of maternalism broadly is what connected these for me at first. So my paper um, on women's recruiting for the far and alt-right was kind of the first place I saw connections and how alt-right women were using motherhood as a, a site for radicalization. But the QAnon phenomenon, along with another recent phenomenon, tradwife culture online, um, really are starting to show how deeply embedded kind of maternalist and um, concerns are, are for circulating these ideologies. So what I've seen in the last two or three years is that what I'm discussing in my dissertation is being leveraged in very particular ways in these more extreme frames. And with Q, there's actually a, a subset of, of broad subset of mothers engaged with it um, on different scales, but the ones who are really embedded in it are referred to as the QA moms, right? Um, I don't know that they refer to themselves that way, but other people refer to them that way. Um, and, and these are women drawn from these online normative cultures, right, that I study. And the role of mom influencers in those cultures is huge. So it makes sense that they would start to engage um, and circulate things in their networks that are points of discussion or concern within the broader community. Um, but they do connect very specifically to really far-right, alt-right, and kind of trad-wife cultures where, like, a return to feminine roles and domesticity are seen as, like, a true form of liberation for women. So there's a really kind of interesting set of levers that pull from what is going on in the normative sphere to circulate materials that are much more extreme. And that's why it's kind of really interested me. Um, I would say Q and the Q kind of mom framing works in particular has been so successful because it's massive um, because it repackages a particular ideal of women's liberal democratic subjectivity, women's proper civic role. Um, uh, a scholar named Lori Marish describes this in the late 1700s and early 1800s as sentimental materialism, where women become democratic subjects by engaging in creating good domestic environments, rearing civically engaged proper citizens. And they do this through their practices of kind of consumption, right? How do you build 
a good home? How do you rear your children well? How do you do all those things? And that's the, the proper civic role for women in the United States. It's very old, but that is leveraged into the things that I'm studying right now, but just done in a way that meets the current market. So it's the momfluencer market in general, right? Mom influencers who are literally selling domesticity, literally selling, right? Making a good home are perfect site where women's civic engagement through something like maternalism and sentimentality, right? Their care for their children, which then becomes posed as a care for all children. Um, it's, it's just a perfect storm of how that, those logics work together. So super interesting. No, I think that that's fascinating, Ashley. And, you know, when you were talking, I just kept thinking of the phrase weaponized motherhood, right? That these women are wielding, as you said, these platforms that they've really built around an image of what maternalism should look like. You know, you see all of these, it, it kind of ends up in my, you know, the discovery feed on Instagram, where it's just these replications of a, a particular aesthetic, a particular kind of woman that you should aspire to be. And all of that is then leveraged, as you said, in these online extremist cultures. And I, and I think that's really fascinating. And it also gets at this idea of how these online communities reproduce that kind of fits into my next question of how do these mom influencers see themselves fitting into these extreme socio-political movements. And what I mean by that is a lot of times when we talk about extremists, they particularly, you know, they end up on far right YouTube or something, and then they kind of follow that track. Is that the same sort of process for mom influencers? Like what is the kind of, what, what kind of ideology are these women working with before they end up in QAnon? Are, are they coming out of there from their own mom influencer networks or were they already, you know, part of the far right um, networks and other spaces? So I would say that there's a spectrum, a very broad spectrum there. Um, I'm, I'm sure you could absolutely find people on the far right um, influencer networks who are moms who talk about Q. Like that would not surprise me in the least. But what we're talking about with kind of the broad uptake we're seeing with the Save Our Children and Save the Children hashtags. Are, are more mainstream momfluencers who have been around for a while sharing this material. So of those women, right, some don't see themselves as part of a political movement at all, right? They demure on politics almost entirely and focus on the maternal protective aspects and wanting to, to know the truth so that they can care for their children. Um, some are more explicitly political and engaged um, with other kind of ongoing conspiracy movements and other places this crosses my dissertation. So because of the pandemic, anti-vaccine rhetoric, which had been growing since 2016, um, starts to get folded in to some of the Q theories, right? The anti-masking protests have a lot of anti-vaxxer and anti-vaccine moms at them. And these start to circulate around each other because Q is very good at pulling in other strands, right? That makes it more effective, essentially, um, if you have multiple avenues of uh, government conspiracy that can lead back to the same place. So many of the women engaged in sharing this may or may not know anything about the kind of deeper far-right networks when they get into it. I'm sure some do. And you can see in some of the different influencers, some have stayed more mainstream and are sharing a few stuff. But some have like completely pivoted and their feeds have gone and feeds and um, the companies they work with have changed entirely into 
uh, 2A, sorry, Second Amendment um, concern-focused things and other kind of highly right-wing and far-right um, concerns. So you can see people reacting along a different spectrum, which is very useful for followings because people can engage with it at different levels initially, right, until they feel the need to develop further. Um, and I don't say that in a good way, but it's it's a productive thing for engagement from the perspective of the conspiracy theory itself. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially when, you know, you think about how people end up in the, in the QAnon conspiracy. Most of the time they don't, as you would say, like dive to, into the most extreme, they slowly become more engrossed. That makes a lot of sense. And I would say the networks of momfluencers here, it's, one has to have an understanding of how vast the online communities focus on mothering and parenting are to get a real feel for what this is. So colloquially referred to as the mama sphere, right? There are hundreds of thousands, I would argue millions of individual pages, large blogs, um, social media platform sites, pages, things like that. I mean, to the point where there's a whole genre in the community of influencers that do nothing but aggregate content so that their users can find the best parenting content from the community. Right, they, right, they make money off of aggregating other content. That's how vast it is. Um, and so within that context, right, top influencers will have 2 million followers, but middling influencers will have in the tens of thousands. And even kind of baseline influencers, right, people who are not actually making money from companies yet will have thousands. So these are massive networks that are all interconnected and they're not just connected via kind of parenting. That's a, that's a prime angle. But as my research on my dissertation shows, they're connected to topics, right? So ecology, anti-vaccine, um, second amendment, homeland security, um, LGBT issues, the, the mama dragons focus on that, right? So so they do also then outlink to wider communities who may not even be in that part of the momosphere. And they've taken up the same model, right, of influencer marketing of 360 degree branding. So they have multiple platforms you can access them on. So you can get them on your phone. You can get them on your computer at home. You can, you know, engage with them in a variety of ways. And they're funded, the large ones are funded by major corporations. So it's a really, um, it's very disturbing that this connection is so broad and deep because um, it is a vast swath of the public that is potentially engaged through these networks. Thanks for that, Ashley. And, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, I, I was just sitting listening to the numbers that you're describing. I mean, on the one hand, I'm aware I'm an Instagram user. I'm a Twitter user. I see how big of a following some of these women have, but then, you know, I, I totally didn't think about the the secondary and tertiary effects, right? Not just the the top level influencers, but what's happening with people with thousands of followers. That's still so many people that they're trying to reach with with these kinds of ads and um, cultural materials. Really, I wanted to ask really briefly before I ask you a question about the mainstreaming effect of this. What kind of platforms are we talking about? I'm specifically thinking about Instagram. Is that kind of what sphere you're operating in? Or are there other platforms that they're using? Instagram has definitely become the most central um, social platform for moms online. Um, the way Instagram works and the, the images and the sharing of images 
and the sharing of kind of aspirational aesthetics um, is highly popular. So it's definitely the biggest site. Um, a lot of kind of mom bloggers still have ongoing sites and will use social media to connect back to their longer blog pieces and things where they write about products or write about life experiences. So you can click an Instagram post and end up at a blog, right? Um, essentially, or follow through to a blog. Facebook groups are still also deeply connected, remembering that Instagram is owned by Facebook and connected to Facebook. So that kind of cross-platforming matters as well, because that's a way that someone maybe from a mom network ends up sharing with someone from their broader family and you get other people connected in, right? So yeah, the platforms and the interconnection is is a big deal, although Instagram is really the central place right now. That makes that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to go to this idea that I actually spoke with Julie DeCook, who's head of the gender research unit at CAR, we were talking about incels, but I think the question that we were wrestling with really applies to mom influencers here. Um, One of the things that Julia and I discussed was that it's almost impossible to really separate out the extremist forms of sexism and and anti-women violence that you see from incels from mainstream cultures of, of sexism, especially in the United States context. So are there connections between more mainstream or normative expressions of what you would call fierce mothering to far-right ideas of fierce mothering. So that's really interesting. And I, I completely agree on the incel front as well. Um, I would say it's really important to kind of note over the history of the mama sphere, the history of women engaging in this and the development of the practices I talk about that the majority of mom influencers and mommy bloggers right, women online, predominantly identified as white, college-educated, and middle-class, the the ones who are pushing this and really making money, not all the engagements. Um, It's not all of them, certainly. It's not entirely that, but there's a a very strong strand of kind of white, college-educated, middle-class women engaged in, in these movements, which is also the same demographic that is much touted around the 2016 election of women for conservative um, voting. Um, and it it is a section of a demographic section that certainly um, conservative political operatives really work to engage in every political cycle in this country. So yes, there are definitely connections. And I think that the kind of extremist um, women influencers and that genre like utilize things from the normative sphere around gender um, to circulate stuff. So one of my kind of um, focuses is how gender is really useful for normalizing um, things that we wouldn't tolerate in kind of everyday speech. So uh, anti-Semitism, racism, right? Gender is something and kind of misogyny and anti-feminism are really prevalent in our everyday life and embedded into a lot of things. And so they're, they're, really acceptable in our culture. And that impacts kind of um, the online momosphere environments as well. I mean, there's a very strong movement. This is where kind of hashtag tribe wife culture comes in. There's a very strong anti-feminist return to traditional feminine roles movement within online mom cultures, as well as a progressive one. So those things are, are things that far right um, women online do leverage. Um, and 
kind of the way it ends up appearing is that they adapt what what I would call a post-feminist sensibility, right? A belief that we don't need feminism anymore because we're all equal now. And that is kind of prevalent um, in our society, has been for a while, according to Angela McRobbie. And they turn it into this virulent kind of anti-feminist, right, um, framework and directive about women's proper role as in, in society as a, as a mechanism of returning society to its former glory, right? And because gender in their mind is biologically or divinely um, imperative, right? That women trying to be equal, just like black folk trying to be equal or other uh, people of color trying to be equal, that's destabilizing society. That's what the problem is. It's, it's not any other issue. It's not economics. It's really this battle over getting back to the right hierarchy, which starts with gender and race. Um, or at least that's where I see the interconnections. And so in the mainstream, I would argue that a lot of fierce mothering circulates what I've called an unmarked white um, feminine epistemology, like un, uh, a way, white ways of knowing the world, white ways of understanding mothering, white ways of doing mothering as a universal, right? So it participates in that kind of way from my perspective if that makes sense. No, it makes complete sense, Ashley. And I think that tracks with a lot of what we talk about at CAR, that there's mutually reinforcing discourses around whiteness, gender, that the far right is in many ways just a more extreme form of pre-existing patterns that we already see that exist in, in discourse that most of us are a part of. So with the time that we have left, um, because we've been talking a little bit about how people end up in this QAnon conspiracy, many times not quite realizing what they're getting themselves into. How can we as consumers and observers separate out perhaps more benign examples of wanting to draw attention to issues of child and human trafficking to, you know, versus far right conspiracy theories? So this is a super important question um, and really important today, given that I just saw flagged uh, material online stating that Q leaders and people prominent in QAnon are now suggesting that all Q references and QAnon tagging is should be removed from their posts to prevent deplatforming and content removal. So it's going to become even dicier as to what things are directly tied to Q if they do go through with that um, maneuver. Um, since it's not centralized, it's hard to say how that'll play out, but just that the fact that they've made the calls and apparently have been dis discussing it for probably about a year, according to the materials I was looking at, um, means that it's it's going to become more hidden, so it's going to be more complex. Um, most directly, I'm going to answer in reference to these momfluencer networks, because that's what I've seen spend the most time with, um, and those mechanisms work a little differently than some of the other areas. Um, a primary kind of mechanism of circulation, as we've been talking about a little bit of memes and images and stories and, and information about Q is neutralized through the way moms share material, right? So it's given kind of a common aesthetic frames, which you had mentioned, pastels, neutral colors, the crate and barrel or pottery barn sensibility, um, insertion among other really normative content. And those work as background context for sharing messaging and makes those messages seem like an extension of kind of normal concerns. And 
so that makes them easier to kind of hide a little bit. I would have said before that hashtags and slogans, right? So a primary slogan is uh, where we go one, we go all, shorthanded as WWG1, WGA. Allow posts to fly under the radar so people who are in the movement get it and people who aren't yet don't. But if maybe they're on the fence or interested, they can search the hashtag, search the reference and find out more information. Um, so letting people know like, these hashtags are dangerous or this slogan or this phrasing is a potential problem um, might be one framework to think about. Um, it's really complicated because material that's shared by friends or personalities that we trust online has a highly persuasive effect on us. So well-known mom influencers have that type of legitimacy, what I would call ethos in rhetoric. Um, and that legitimacy they have with audience members who have been following them. And it's built over time. And so those audience members are likely to give them the benefit of the doubt, at the very least, over wacky posts. So it can be difficult to, to deal with, right, having to, to speak against the legitimacy of someone that someone listens to. So be cognizant, I would say, of the fact that that exists, right, that these are, are trusted sources in some ways. Um, other influencers are openly talking about their conversion in certain ways online as a way to address it head on and make it seem less abnormal. Um, and, and that leverages the legitimacy aspect. So it can be important to find out where the person is getting their information from and why they think it should be something they pay attention to. Um, differentiation is, is complex and it depends on how deep someone is into the conspiratorial mindset. As you sort of mentioned earlier, right, conspiratorial thinking means that proof of the theory is proof and no proof is also proof, right? So right. the essential paradox, yeah. Right. So if you try to debunk it, right, the answer is, see, they're just that good, right? They've covered it up and you can't find it. So once someone is kind of having that reaction, normal standard debunking processes and facts won't work for that. So... I would say a focus on folks not folded in to the conspiracy theories that depth yet would be most open to facts. It's really important to like be suspect of all kind of save the children. All of those hashtags right now need skepticism until that's not a prime focus of Q anymore. Um, and to question why, why doesn't this post talk about the fact that um, the majority of children trafficked are trafficked for labor not sex. There is sex trafficking, but like, why aren't there more details about what trafficking is? Why aren't there more details about the kind of everydayness of who typically um, moves children into trafficking, right? Unfortunately, it tends to be family and acquaintances and people they know or people that groom them. That's, yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Most of the images that one of the big things that I've seen Q influencing was that, and this is, this is true that there are it is very difficult to take pornographic content of children down online, but how it gets there is usually, as you said, from family members, that it's not a, a grand conspiracy. It's abuse and exploitation inside familial networks most often. Right. And so anything not talking about that as a prime vector should be suspect. And the Q theories do not actually ever talk about, right, the tier three countries, what we call tier three countries in this world, the worst offenders and allowing trafficking. There are 23 of them, most of them emanating from regions such as Eastern Europe and Russia, Central America, Southeast Asia. Um, so 
when you focus on like Hollywood and the Democratic National Committee, like that's just it's not where the trafficking is coming from. And so pointing out like, okay, well that that may be good information, but like why aren't they talking about these other things that we that are known facts might help people who are fence sitters or just briefly engaged to kind of pull back a little bit. Those are the things I can think of. It's a really tricky wicket um in terms of not necessarily separating content, but separating content for folks who don't have a base of knowledge on them. Mm, yeah. And I and I think this is, you know, this is one of the the really tough challenges is you're trying to explain to people why focusing on in quotes saving children is problematic, right? Like that is a tough thing once you've once someone has already started going down this path, it's hard to to explain the context of why this is a problem to someone. So Ashley, thank you very much for taking your time to be here with us and and work through some of these really challenging issues. Where can our listeners read more from you or hear more from you? Um, Well, first, thank you for having me. It's it's been um, really interesting to be able to start thinking through this kind of deeper connection to my um, dissertation work and what's going on here. I am a CAR fellow also in the gender unit, so I have some blogs posts up on CAR. Um, I have a uh, ResearchGate account, if you're an academic on ResearchGate, where you can find many of my materials. My primary paper on kind of this general topic, Shield Maidens, um, All Maternalism and Women Recruiting for the Far and Alt-Right, can be found in the Open Access Journal, uh, Journal for Deradicalization online. Um, and other materials um, are in Fair Observer and Open Democracy that are linked with CAR, and I have a fellowship with the IRMS, so a little bit everywhere. Awesome. Well, Ashley, it sounds like you've got your your brain in many pots to to completely butcher that phrase, but but thank you again for for taking the time from all the work that you're doing to talk to us today. And this has been another episode of Right Rising. We'll see you all next time.